Millions of frontline workers keep our economy running and are provided with the latest technology to do their jobs. But digital adoption, especially by frontline workers, is really hard. This is Frontline Innovators. We explore how to overcome challenges and achieve success when we empower our essential workers. I'm Justin Lake. And I'm Gene Signorini. Together, we speak with experts who are leading the way and driving digital transformation to the front line. This podcast is sponsored by Skillful on a mission to help frontline workers learn and use the technology needed to succeed in their jobs. I'm your host, Justin Lake, and we've got another great episode lined up for today. Today's guest is from a little bit of a different industry than what we've interviewed a lot in the show, so I'm really excited about that. Today's guest is from the restaurant business and has spent uh, a good portion of his career in operational management. He's currently the Vice President of Training and Operations Services at One Table Restaurant Brands. Please welcome to the show, Matt Candido. Hello, Matt. Hi. Thank you so much for joining me today. We've got a whole bunch to cover because we haven't explored uh, with a lot of guests on the show the uniqueness of frontline workers in, uh, in the restaurant industry on our show. So I'm really looking forward to doing that with you today. Before we get started um, on those questions, I want to kick it off as we always do and ask you what you think is the biggest challenge facing deskless frontline workers today. Yeah, absolutely. So um, especially in my industry, I think one of the biggest challenges facing deskless workers right now is the uh, corporate side of the business typically does not understand the aptitude level of a lot of its team members as it relates to technology. And what we find is that sometimes we make assumptions about whether or not somebody even has basic skill sets and knowledge as it relates to either mobile technology or iPads. And uh, that may not always be the case. So really taking the time to assess the skill set of your population before rolling out a new technology and making sure that you have all of the bits and pieces and training in place to prepare your team for a new technology rollout is probably one of the biggest uh, missteps I think that people make when they first uh, are, are thinking about bringing new technology into a space. That makes absolutely perfect sense to me. And I think the, the other thing is when <clears throat> industries such as yours that are having to onboard so many new people right now, you really have to prepare for such a diverse level of capabilities coming into the organization, right? Because as I understand it, just from reading the news and, and talking to you before today, hiring people in your field is difficult and you can't just hire those people with a high level of proficiency around technology or you won't fill all the open spots. Well, exactly. I mean, a lot of times, you know, we're hiring somebody who has washed dishes for 15 years. Right. Um, <laughs> you, you don't need to be technologically proficient in order to wash dishes, but when you bring them into our organization, if all of your training and all of your systems are technology-based, um, you can't assume a certain level of technical competence. Yeah. No, that makes perfect sense. All right. I have a bunch of things that I'd really like to, to talk about specific to the use of technology in your space with frontline workers and, and how you're handling things. You told me some great things when we uh, prepared for today's session a little bit. So I want to explore a couple of those topics. But before we get into that, really want to let the audience know a little bit about your background. Tell us how you ended up working for uh, a, a big restaurant chain and uh, tell us about the journey. Yeah, absolutely. I moved to LA in 2004 and um, I started my hospitality restaurant career 
uh, as a host at the Cheesecake Factory. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and if you talk to a lot of hospitality professionals, you'll find that at one point or another, they worked for the Cheesecake Factory. Um, so when you they, said you moved to LA in 2004, I thought you were going to tell us that you were trying to get into acting. That's what I thought this, the storyline was going. <laughs> well, uh, low key, yes, that is the case. I did okay. to be an actor. Oh. Um, but then I also got a restaurant job like you do. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and... Uh, yeah, so I worked for the Cheesecake Factory for a while, and I, one of the things I valued about that experience was the amazing level of training program that they had put in place. Um, you know, in terms of an introduction to the industry, like there's there was nothing better at the time. Um, so I worked there for a couple of years, and I took a foray into a little bit more fine dining, um, and then I found myself in need of a job actually because of the 2008 recession. Um, and that's when I encountered Tender Greens, um, which is one, part of One Table Restaurant Brands now. And I took a job as a cashier there because I was just having such a hard time finding a, another position. And I saw something that was really special within the brand, working directly with the founders, seeing uh, kind of the birth of the quick casual restaurant space um, and really their dedication to providing amazing affordable food to people at, uh, at like really great prices um, while still having a close tie to the ingredients and still being able to um, innovate and come up with these chef driven dishes. It was something that I'd never seen before. And I saw an opportunity there because we only had three locations at the time. And I was like, you know what, like, let's stick with this and see what happens. That's really awesome. So you've really been there from the earliest days of this organization. Very early. I just, I just crossed the 13 year mark. Holy smokes. That's awesome. Yeah. So, so tell us more about how you ended up now. And so that, that gets you into the company and um, tell us about your journey into a, a leadership role with uh, the vast responsibility that you have today. Yeah. Uh, so Full disclosure, I originally joined and I had intended to continue acting and get out of there as soon as possible. But when I <laughs> when I when I really started to identify with the founders and the ethos of the company and what they were trying to accomplish, and I saw this opportunity to grow with a brand. Um, I come from a restaurant family. My grandfather owned a restaurant, my uncle owned a restaurant. And that's when I really started to look at this as a potential career opportunity. Um, they offered me a position as a junior manager about eight months into my tenure as a cashier. And I, I jumped at the opportunity. Um, so I just slowly worked my way up and I became a, a sous chef. Uh, I became the general manager of one of our locations in West Hollywood. So I had to learn to cook. Um, <laughs> and uh, I was the executive chef for a few years. Um, and then when the opportunity to join the corporate team came up, I was elated and it was in the L&D world. We'd never had anything like that before. And they were looking for somebody to really build that department from the ground up and solidify all of our practices and procedures. So um, about six and a half, seven years ago, I joined the, the corporate team uh, as a manager of learning and development and continued to work my way up to uh, now the vice president of training and operation services. That's fantastic. So what was it that drew you into the L&D side of things? Was that them pulling you in or had you shown some interest in this previously? T tell me a little bit more about how that happened. 
Uh, strangely enough, the reason I started with the Cheesecake Factory and the amazing training programs that they had is because as I joined uh, Tender Greens at the time, a smaller organization, I noticed an opportunity to have a lot more practice, procedure, policy, uh, a formalized training program in place that would really help fuel the expansion of the business. And I, even as a junior manager, I was constantly talking to the, the founder saying like, we need to put some training in place. My training was non-existent. Right. I, it was, it was kind of like, okay, here you go. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, sink, sink or swim. Um, you know, and I think that when they came to me and asked for me to head up the department, I, that was a really great opportunity, but it was also, I think, in part due to the fact that I'd been talking to them about training for close to four and a half, five years. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it's really interesting to hear you de describe that because you, um, obviously had a passion for this. And I think one of the neat things that you just shared in your story is seeing in the example of cheesecake, Fact cheesecake factory, um, obviously a wildly successful brand. And obviously they had some things kind of dialed in on that. Maybe it wasn't perfect. Uh, I suspect you got to see some things that you wanted to repeat and things that you wanted to avoid going forward, but you, you got to see that model there. So as you bring that into to your organization, now you get to kind of craft that around what you think is, is the best practice there. Now you've been in the L&D role now. I mean, it's coming up on 10 years, if I'm understanding this correctly, right? Indeed. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about the unique things or things that you think might be unique. I know you've spent a lot of your career now in the restaurant business. Um, what do you think are some of the unique challenges that are specific to that business and the types of workers from an L&D standpoint? Yeah. So, I mean, the restaurant industry on a whole has notoriously low margins. Um, <laughs> it's yeah. one of those, it's one of those industries where, um, you know, you're talking about probably 25 to 30% of your cost is labor, another 20 to 30% of your cost is food. Um, and then you've got all of your other controllables and occupancy. Um, and when you look at that, you're like, okay, so here's your profit margin. If you're doing 15%, that's pretty good. Um, where do you fit training into that equation? Because you don't yeah. have a lot of extra time um, to make that happen effectively. Um, and you don't have a lot of extra labor dollars to make that happen. So you have to be as, as efficient as possible in order to deploy that training and get people up to speed in order to produce the materials and provide guests with an amazing experience. So <clears throat> What if I tried to argue that the investments in training should actually help you yield more profit? Would, would uh, you call BS on that or no, am I, I preaching the choir here? I would agree with you wholeheartedly. And I think that that's one of the places that a lot of restaurant organizations misstep is that um, they don't necessarily see the value in or invest the funds in making training happen because they're looking at those margins and they're all like, well, something's got to, something's got to give. And sometimes it's training. Um, I would, I'm, I'm happy to say that it's not our organization. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Clearly not. Yeah. No, it, it, it does seem like, and, and listen, I'm not, I, I, sometimes I think I say things on the podcast that come off as more judgmental than I mean them to be. Uh, but I do think a lot of times I've heard people say like, we don't have budget for training and I'm like, and 
it's like, well, then you probably shouldn't be doing the initiatives that you're trying to do because, you know, it's like, hey, I'm, I'm building a table, but we don't quite have enough budget for the legs. Okay, well, then that's not a table, right? Like it, it, <laughs> <laughs> there are some requirements here to do things effectively in running a business. And it, it always just kind of shocks me. And again, I, I know it sounds uh, judgy of me to say that, but it's just like, well, then why are we pushing out these initiatives? Maybe it would be better to not roll out that technology or not roll out that new program than to do it and cripple its success by not investing in it correctly. So what, what are the things that have happened in your business that have led you and, and the rest of the leadership in your organization to see the ROI on those investments? Is it a cultural gut thing or have you actually worked out the math and is there a spreadsheet somewhere where you guys do the math on that? I think it's a little bit of both. Um, you know, one of, one of the things that we, uh, that we attempted very early on in my L&D career was I was very gung-ho on bringing a learning management system on board. Um, I was like, this is how we are going to get the information to the people. This is how we are going to get them trained. Um, it will reduce some of our costs in terms of like printing. Uh, it'll give us more flexibility in terms of being able to pivot quickly because we're not printing, laminating and mailing out materials to stores. So I did some shopping. We found a learning management system. I won't say which one. Um, it was not the best. Um, <laughs> yep. And I'll be, I'll be frank, it was a little bit of a failure um, because we deployed the system and it wasn't getting used and we were left with this program that um, for all intents and purposes should have been this amazing revolutionary piece of technology that was gonna help us get to where we needed to be as an organization. But in reality, just kind of sat there unused for a couple of years. Um, so in a little post-mortem analysis of, of what happened and, and how we ended up there, one of the things I realized is that we weren't putting the technology in the hands of the employees that they needed in order to be successful in their jobs. There was no way on site for them to really access that training and those materials and that platform, aside from sitting at the manager's computer in the office when the manager needed that to do their job as well. Um, so when you're talking about training a staff of, you know, sometimes 50 plus people and one computer as the access point for all of that information, um, of course it failed. <laughs> yeah. Hindsight is 2020, right? Yeah. Um, but what that made me realize is that forward looking as we began to think about, you know, bringing on a different learning management system, first and foremost, it had to be. Uh, a mobile first technology. It had to be something that team members could access on their mobile devices if they chose to do so. Um, being in California, that's very important. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. um, but beyond that, we had to provide them with other tools to access that training. So that's when we decided to bring in uh, you know, mobile technology to all the restaurants and, and equip them with a minimum of two iPads per store to make sure that if the team member didn't have access to it, um, because they didn't have a mobile device or if the team member didn't want to use their own mobile device that they had access to that information in the restaurant um, on a device that was not tied to the day-to-day -day operation of the restaurant. So tell us what kind of content you're distributing through this mobile first solution. Is this everything from how to greet a customer to the difference between different plates on your menu? 
Yeah, absolutely. So we've got a number of different um, uses for these uh, for the for the iPads. Um, one of them being a content management system called PlayerLink. Um, this allows us to keep digital records of all of our recipes, all of our plating guides, um, all of our standard operating procedures, so that there's basically the the tender greens bible, if you will, um, that houses all of the information that somebody would need in order to do their job. Um, and then we also have the learning management system, which is a uh, UKG learning powered by Skooks. Um, and that is a phenomenally powerful platform that is mobile first. Um, and that allows us to send out a lot of compliance training like safety training to comply with OSHA. It allows us to send out um, PCI compliance training um, and uh, soon um, also uh, anti-harassment training. Okay. So some of those things are a little bit toward like HR compliance stuff. Mm -hmm. The more probably the things sitting in the LMS that you talked about, but the player link piece of that is really more about how you operate the business day in and day out at each store level at each restaurant. Exactly. That's, that's the more operational tool. Okay. So tell us about the, the process of creating content. Are you creating the content in, in your team? Are you licensing content from others, maybe for some of that HR stuff? Talk us through that process, both for, obviously you're not licensing the, the recipes and the SOP, you know, types of stuff, because that's proprietary to you guys. But t tell us about how you're creating that content today. Tell us about that process a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I do create some content myself still. Um, I used to have an instructional designer um, who worked uh, heavily in uh, Articulate to create uh, interactive content for us. Um, he was really instrumental when we were doing monthly specials because every single month we would have to come out with a new training program uh, for that monthly special. And he was amazing at making it a very interactive and engaging experience for our team members to learn. Um, we do also license some stuff um, with the California anti-harassment training. It, there are very specific requirements to that. And, and so we do purchase that course. Um, and then we are also working with a custom uh, content creator right now to re-envision re um, what our hospitality and service training looks like. So that we just kicked off that process. It's a very exciting process where we're gonna be shooting some video content um, in the stores, hopefully using some of our um, own employees as the actors. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Awesome, okay. What are some of the things the content creation part of L&D um, is becoming increasingly fascinating to me because it seems that there are multiple stages of making investments in L&D in both, you know, you've got kind of the, the tech stack side of things, which you just talked about the iterations that you've gone through and maybe not making the best decision. And then later refining that with a better set of requirements with, with, you know, the new wisdom that you came into that with. But having a platform with no content is as good as not having the platform at all. So, but, but then the other thing that I hear a lot about is the content not staying fresh. And that comes back to some of the, the investment piece before. It, it seems to fall into this trap a little bit of, hey, we're going to go make this investment in a new LMS and we're going to load it up with a bunch of great content. And then just at the pace of change that we're all experiencing in every business today, like six months into that, that content needs to be refreshed, right? There are things about it, not all of it, but some of it. How do you handle that process of 
or maybe you're going to tell me you don't handle it well. I'm curious to hear that. I should ask it first. <laughs> Do you handle the process well of refreshing that content? And if so, kind of how does that uh, advance in your business? Um, I would say that we we have had points of handling it well, and we've had points of not handling it well. I think one of the uh, one of the biggest challenges as it relates to keeping that content fresh and relevant is um, interdepartmental communication um, and an under, uh, really a global understanding within an organization of what's changing, when is it changing, why is it changing, and who's managing that process to make sure that the appropriate players get the information they need to keep things up to date and fresh. Um, if you've got a siloed organization where people aren't talking to each other, you're a lot more likely to find yourself in a position where the content is all of a sudden out of date because somebody over here has made a change and hasn't told the person over here who needs to make the change. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I would say, you know, communication is key um, to making sure that those things stay up to date. I think the other thing specifically as it relates to devising um, the structure of content is really taking a modular view of those things and using micro learning to your advantage. Because if you've got a complex process that you're trying to put into a training and you have everything from start to finish, you almost have to start from scratch every time there's a tweak here or a tweak there versus if you keep everything modular and you kind of break it down into the little bits and pieces, you can pull one piece out and insert the new piece. So that way you're not finding yourself in a position where like you've just invested a ton of money to create this like robust, amazing um, training. And now you have to go back and reshoot the entire thing. Right. Um, you know, so I think really using that, that modular viewpoint is, is a benefit as well. So what are some of the practices in that? Because it, it seems like that can be time consuming to stitch out. Uh, to, to figure out where to kind of lay out the breakpoints in in your content. Have you guys figured out any secrets that you can share with us about how to modularize that content in a way that makes it easy to build, but also easy to maintain? Uh, a lot of planning up front. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, a lot of a lot of storyboarding and scripting before you actually get into the creation to make sure that all of the pieces make sense together and that the sequence of them makes sense together. Um, and then just being really proficient with your LMS and creating um, those modules in sequencing in them such a way that it's easy enough to pull one piece out and put another piece in. Yeah, that makes sense. So what kind of feedback, you rolled out the iPads, you talked about that before. So you went from an experience where you hadn't gotten the engagement that you were hoping to with your L&D strategy, but your second go around, it sounds like you rethought things, decided to shift to more of a mobile first strategy, which is awesome. Um, tell me about the feedback that you got from managers, frontline workers, that the whole community out in the field that was on the receiving end of that. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting because I think the first thing that we put out on the iPads was actually this content management system. Um, and one of the ways that we used to operate as an organization before we had these iPads was we were in a constant state of innovation. So things were always changing and we had these paper recipe books um, that maybe the recipe was up to date. Maybe the recipe wasn't up to date. Maybe you missed an email where somebody sent you the newest recipe. Um, maybe it got lost in shipping when we sent you the laminated copy. Um, and so I think that starting with 
a tool that is so essential for people to do their daily jobs, um, like recipes, um, was really a benefit because once we pulled all of the paper out of the restaurant and we put these iPads in, this was now the source of truth. And if you wanted to find something, you had to go there. Um, there wasn't another option. The recipe didn't exist somewhere else. And so I think it really drove the adoption of that particular piece of technology because it was now the only option. Um, you know, and I think the fact that it was running on the same operating system as, um, you know, a number of people are familiar with also contributed to the fact that like, they're like, oh, this is similar to my device here. You know, I know how to use this. They were a little bit more comfortable with that. Yeah. What about the sharing of devices? Did that create any challenges? I mean, you had two iPads in the store. I think you mentioned before you had up to 50 people in a given location. So any challenges that came from sharing devices, um, literally maybe just sometimes finding devices, like what are some of the things that came up that you might do a little differently if you had to, to do it again? I honestly, if I could put more iPads in the store, I would. If I, yeah. if I could, if I could put more in right now, I would give every store at least two more iPads. Um, part of the reason for that is because of how valuable they are in terms of, you know, a, a content management solution, but also from the perspective that, you know, you may have somebody who's trying to follow a recipe and then you may have a new hire that's over here that needs to do a training module. There's your two iPads. If somebody else needs, if, yeah, somebody else needs to do a recipe, then they have to either wait or borrow it. Um, and then on top of that, once you put the technology in the hands of people in the restaurant, everybody else who's in the organization finds other things that that technology can do for their department. Um, so for instance, our, um, our uh, facilities and maintenance department has the, our maintenance app on there. So that way people can go, the managers can go in there and they can use the iPad to actually take a video or a picture of a malfunctioning piece of equipment and submit a ticket to the, to the facilities department directly from the iPad versus having to go back to the computer in the office and submit a ticket and upload a picture from their phone or something like that. But that's um, available. That app is deployed on the same iPads. And going back to your scenario before, you could have somebody following a recipe that's getting caught up on on a new recipe. You could have somebody else training. And if a cooler goes down now, you need a third device. Correct. Yeah. So that's that is definitely something I would do. I would put I would put more 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 mobile technology in the hands of the the restaurants so that way they have more access. Yeah, that's good. Is there any um, negative feedback that came from the folks in the field? Uh, just that there aren't enough of them. Yeah. That's actually good. Yeah. I mean, that's, if that's the biggest complaint you're going to get, that's a sign of a successful program. Right. I mean, and, and maybe that helps to, to build some justification for increasing the budget over time. I, I know that's going to be a dilemma now, right? Because it's like, Hey, we said that we could get a lot done with two iPads. Now we're asking for four or five per location. Right. I, I get it. That's going to be a tough sale internally sometimes, but it's, it's much better than having made the investment and heading out to a store and seeing them collect dust in the corner. Indeed. Indeed. And I, th you know, I think that also like when we launched the iPads, there was a very specific use case for them. Um, as the years have passed, the use cases have grown and grown and grown. And I think that that kind of warrants the additional investment in hardware and technology. Yeah. Well, it, <clears throat> there's no shortage of new technology that's 
being rolled out. Right. And, and that's, it, it's kind of like feeding on itself. And, and as a guy that spends, you know, I've spent most of my career in the tech space. So I, I love seeing this, this we're, we're actually seeing all of these things come to fruition that we've talked about for years. It, it just, it's exciting to hear that you're in a business that hasn't really been thought of as heavy in tech innovation, but here you are using it in a fantastic use case with a, a workforce that can be challenging just because of all the things that we talked about uh, earlier and, and to see them embrace the technology to the point where they're actually asking for more of it. I mean, that's, that's freaking awesome. It is. It is. I, I actually, as we talk about this, I almost feel like a caveman because the other day I sat in on a demo for, for a company that is now pitching uh, VR training for restaurant employees in the metaverse. Yeah. And I, it was phenomenal. It was a, a really interesting concept. And I, I think that eventually that will be the wave of the future. Yeah. So what kind of training would you consider for that type of technology? Is that about how to deal with customers and in, in some of the soft skills training and things like that, that might be really well suited to, to VR, or is that actually training cooks on how to cut up cucumbers? Uh, you know, I think that there are specific tasks that would, that would be great for a, the hospitality training and the different scenarios that you can build into it. And, and that experience from a service perspective are absolutely a great use case for VR training. I think that you know, with a restaurant concept such of our, such as ours, where there's a lot of um, assembly happening, um, you know, you're you're building the salad, you're putting in this ingredient, you're putting in that ingredient. You have to remember where it is on the line. Um, there's different, there's that muscle memory that happens. Um, I think that that's a, another great use case because when you think about that, not only are you getting the muscle memory down because you have to actually, you know, move your hand as you're seeing it and pulling it, um, but you're also not wasting product. So, you know, when you think about a traditional training or an opening of a restaurant, I mean, we have days where we just, we're just making food. We're just making lots and lots of food and we're not, we're not able to serve guests yet. Um, and some of that food gets eaten, but some of it goes to waste. So, um, you know, this is a situation where you wouldn't specifically be having to, um, you wouldn't have to waste product in order to train somebody, which is another great advantage of that. Yeah. That's really interesting. What other tech innovation do you see happening in your restaurant and in others? What, where do you see technology evolving to in your business? Uh, not specifically related to learning and development, but I think that one of the interesting things that came out of this, uh, that came out of the post-pandemic world is, you know, people have gotten a lot more accustomed to the idea of, you know, using a QR code to scan somebody's menu and to view it on their phones, um, it, mobile ordering directly in the restaurant, tableside ordering directly from the restaurant um, without having to actually interact with a human being, um, you know, I think that there's probably a lot of a lot of opportunity there to um, create these seamless digital experiences, not just for the team members but for the guests. That makes it um, a really cool and um, technology forward experience. I'm a little off track with this next question and thinking about <laughs> you know frontline innovators, but I am kind of fascinated by what you just said because um, I am. A restaurant user, not uh, I, I could never own a restaurant. Um, my wife and I are not big in culinary skills, 
So we like to go to restaurants and lately service levels I know have been challenging for, you know, all the companies in your space, but I'm also curious about where technology automation is going to fundamentally change the restaurant experience for me as your consumer. And there are some ways when I would say I would love to walk in even to a sit down restaurant and just do my ordering on an app, especially if it improves the accuracy of my order. Um, and I get exactly what I wanted with, you know, the dressing on the side and all those other goofy requests that I make when I go to a restaurant. Right. Um, but I wonder, will that neuter the, the experience of, of going to a restaurant? Because it's not just somebody preparing food for me, but it is about that experience. How are you, this again, this is a little bit off topic from what we normally talk about in our show, but I'm just genuinely curious about how you are thinking of that in your industry and how to bridge the gap with that personal touch yet, you know, filling some gaps with technology? You know, I think it's really dependent upon the concept, right? Like if you're going into a more of a fine dining establishment, that's not the experience that you're looking for. That's not what you're going there for, right? right. You're, you're, you're going for the, the overall experience. I would argue that in the two concepts under our umbrella, um, you're probably not going to see that because one of the things that, that, we pride ourselves on is sort of an elevated experience of the quick casual um, restaurant space. So uh, to the extent possible, I think that we're going to continue to provide that human interaction um, just so that way there's, there's that touch point, that connection with our guests. Um, But I, I think in other quick casual chains where perhaps there's already almost kind of like, dare I say a fast food kind of vibe where like, you know, you're not necessarily going there as an experiential thing. Um, there's opportunity for that there. Um, and as much as we want to continue to create jobs, I think everyone is aware of the, the rising cost of labor um, across the nation. And when you're looking again, like I said earlier about a, a very low margin business, um, you have to choose where you're gonna invest that money. And some people may choose to invest it in the quality of the product and technology and create this seamless experience for guests that is, you know, technology forward and has amazing food. And perhaps by using technology, you know, they can keep the prices a little bit lower. So I think there's a lot of opportunity in a space like that where, you know, you can reinvest the funds in different ways. I'm curious to see how this shakes out in the, in the coming months and years, because I I really do think the restaurant business is, um, probably one of the places that we're going to feel those changes the most because you have struggled so much to, to backfill positions post-pandemic. Um, not you guys in particular, your restaurant chain, but I just mean your industry overall. And um, and so that's, you know, necessity is the mother of invention, right? This is going to force us to rethink how we handle things. And um, you're going to have to put the best people that you can bring into the organization to put them in key strategic roles and then look to, to automate some of the, the tactical steps that are happening. And if that means I order myself and, you know, it changes the experience a little bit, then hopefully that allows you to survive and, and allows us to continue to have a good experience as a consumer market. Yeah. I mean, it, it'll definitely be interesting. Now, I, I, it may sound a bit like I'm looking into a crystal ball, so I don't know that, <laughs> I don't yeah. know that any of that's going to happen. But yeah. if, I were to, if I were to take a look at some of the trends that are happening, I, I, I could see us going there, maybe probably years, not months. But, but yeah, we could go that direction. I want to go back to um, 
a couple of things. I know we're already short on time here, but I want to talk about how you communicated. We talked a little bit about the logistics of just getting iPads out to all the stores and all of that stuff. I've been involved in those types of technology deployments before, so I know that can be really troublesome. But on the human side of things and the the adoption side of things, how did you communicate what was coming out to all of the folks that were in the field to make sure that they knew what was coming, why it was coming, how they were going to use it? What, what did you do that was special there to help ensure success? Um, well, like, like I said, with the iPads, because the first thing that we were rolling out was the recipe book and because there, you know, we were, they were essentially losing the paper copy of it. Um, that definitely played a large role in the success of the rollout. But I think the other thing was just putting together, um, uh, putting together a rollout packet, which, you know, again, we didn't have the technology in place, so we had to do paper, um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, to roll that out. Um, instructions for setup to make sure that they actually put the devices in place properly um, and to make sure that they were in the charging cases, they were in the charge, they were on the charging docks, an explanation of, of what all of that was, how it all worked together and, um, and how to, how to access the information. Um, I think having that in place ahead of time was really helpful. Um, I think putting the, um, all of the devices on a, uh, device management platform was also really helpful uh, because it didn't it meant that none of the managers had to do anything when it came to setting up the actual technology itself we were able to push out all of the updates that we needed we were able to push out all of the apps that needed to be on there we were able to restrict access on the devices to make sure that people weren't accessing things that they wanted to um, or that we didn't want them to um, <laughs> that they wanted to, and that you didn't want them to. I got it. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I think, I think having that in place also was a really important piece to the success of it because it meant that we were able to put these devices out there without fear that, you know, somebody was going to, you know, open something or download something that should not be on a, <laughs> that should yeah. not be on a company owned device. Um, and it also meant that it was less work for the team, right? It, like everything just came ready to go. They would just opened it, put it in the case, put it on the charging dock. How well, or how much time did you have to spend to, um, inform the managers at each restaurant? What was, were they a part of the change management and communication plan, or is that something that you guys just handle from headquarters and kind of communicated with everybody at each restaurant? Uh, so typically, um, as it relates to any sort of communication process within our, our organization, um, we'll have an initiative that we're working on. Um, as we are building that initiative, we'll loop in certain key players from the field, as we call it, um, you know, to get feedback along the way of developing that project. Um, once we've kind of finalized it, we'll, we'll give a small group of people kind of a preview to make sure that we haven't missed anything. Um, and then that kind of flows out from the office out to our area directors and VP of operations. Um, and then from them out to the general managers of the stores and down to the team members. So that's kind of our, our overall communication strategy. I asked that because it seems that we've been hearing a bunch of stories lately of digital transformation in companies with a a big geographic distribution of, of their teams. And it seems that there's been a, a bit of a gap with the frontline leadership in terms of their embrace of the change plan 
and making yeah. sure that they're reinforcing it. it. It sounds like you've you've nipped that pretty well in your organization where that's not a gap that you experienced in your business. Um, well, so one of our founders had this saying, um, and I don't know if he made it up or if he got it somewhere else, but it was, um, if you want to build a better broom, you need to ask the guy who uses the broom every day. Um, and so that's kind of been ingrained in our company culture from the very beginning, which is if you're, if you're creating a tool or introducing something that is for our deskless workers to use, um, and it's something that they need in order to do their job, like you need to get their participation and buy-in from the very beginning and at every key step along the way in the process to make sure that when it gets out there, it's adopted because there's a certain sense of ownership that comes with that um, when you know that somebody who you work next to on a day-to-day -day basis who's doing the same job as you was actually part of, part of the process of building this material or building this, you know, this tool that we're going to use every single day. Um, so I think getting that buy-in and having, having the people actually using the tool um, be a part of the process every step along the way is probably one of the biggest keys to success of any sort of initiative. I, I love that. The, the, we've talked before on the show with a similar theme, but I've not heard it said quite the way that you just shared. If you want to build a better broom, you need to ask the guy who uses the broom every day. I love that. And I think that's so important and often overlooked about engaging the men and women on the front lines. And I think it happens a lot. I mean, the, the theme of the show, Frontline Innovators, it happens a lot in the stories that we talk about on the show, not necessarily with the people that we're talking to, but um, because I think they understand the importance of this, but that because they're remote, because they're not at headquarters, because they're not at the regional office and uh, we're back here in a conference room in front of a whiteboard, it kind of feels like, oh, well, we already know what we need to know. And so I love that idea about going out and just, you know, soliciting that feedback. This has actually been coming up a lot on the show lately. We've, I've heard more and more stories about people that are using surveys and other mechanisms to communicate with the folks in the field, which just informs the decision makers at headquarters so much more about how they can be serving the men and women in the field. So whether it's, you know, in your case, and you've told me before going out to the, to the restaurant, seeing a day in the life of these men and women, seeing how they're working, uh, or if it's other tools like surveys or some combination of all of the above, I think that's so critical for the success of the types of projects that we're talking about here. Yeah, absolutely. What's, um, what's something else that you would like to share with us that maybe I didn't ask you about? that you think is um, something that you're, you're proud of a, a contribution that, that you've made on this uh, career journey that uh, I haven't asked you about thus far. You know, I'm going to go back to, uh, I'm going to go back to one of the things we actually talked about in our conversation prior to this, which is that um, when you're putting technology or systems out into the world for our frontline workers, um, you need to make sure that they're easy to access and easy to understand and simple and straightforward and that the communication is simple and straightforward um, because they're out there doing their jobs and this is just another, the technology can't be, uh, can't be a barrier to them doing their jobs. It needs to be um, essential and fun, a fun part of them doing their jobs. And you can get hung up on something as little as having a system that requires an additional username and password for them to remember. 
you know? Yeah. So, you know, if it's something, you know, if somebody can't log into the system and they can't access the information they need to do their job, um, you know, you failed before you even got out of the gate. So really thinking through all of those small details and making sure that um, when you put stuff out there, it needs to be as simple and straightforward and easy to access as possible because, you know, our men and women out there have a lot of things going on and uh, we can't put any more barriers in their place than we need to. Yeah. I love it. I mean, what you just said is, um, you know, Steve Jobs had an elegant way to say it. And I never remember exactly how it was, but, you know, simplicity is important, but it's not easy, but it is something that we need to think about. We actually need to take the time to think through things that are complex and actually invest to make it simpler. And in the end, we'll get better results and we'll enable the men and women whose lives we're affecting, we'll enable them to be more successful in their jobs and ultimately reach our objectives, right? But I think so so many times we, we let that complexity slip into the solutions that we deploy out to the field and it actually just hurts the chances for success anyway. So we're not helping ourselves. We're certainly not helping them. We're making their lives more frustrating and preventing them from achieving, you know, the success that they otherwise could. So um, I, I love that focus on simplicity. I think that's so important. Well, good. Well, Matt, I appreciate you taking the time today. Um, I do need to wrap it up, but uh, it's been great getting to know you on uh, the last couple of conversations. So thanks for joining and uh, for sharing your wisdom. And uh, for our audience, we do need to wrap it up, but I hope you found this conversation as enjoyable as I have. Uh, If so, please share and rate the podcast. Five-star ratings help ensure that it gets promoted to other professionals like you that are innovating on the front lines. The podcast is sponsored by Skillful, the mobile digital adoption platform for deskless and frontline workers. Visit the website at skyllful.com. And we're always looking for more guests on the show. So if you're out there innovating on the front lines, we'd love to hear your story. If you know somebody else who's innovating on the front lines, we'd love to be introduced. Reach out to me on LinkedIn and share your story. And we'll see you on the next episode. Matt, thanks again. Thank you. 